here at North Sub, our ordinary practice, even though we're not overly rigid about it, is to preach consecutively through books of the Bible. One of many reasons I'm thankful that that's the norm here is because it forces me to take a good hard look at stuff instead of just preaching passages I already have a good handle on. The next few sermons in this series will be a perfect example of that. My study in preparing to preach 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 has actually changed my mind about how I read those passages in, a way that, in ways that I think matter significantly for everyday life. And to oversimplify it, just to communicate what I mean, we might think of there being uh, two ditches. Uh, I think we've got them up here, maybe. Not quite. Do we have that PowerPoint up? Okay, good. We'll get it in a second. Um, two ditches when it comes to living in a world like ours. One would be that we get so comfortable with the world that we slip into idolatry, in the worship of the gods that our neighbors worship, right? Um, but then on the other side, there's another ditch that's that we're so removed from the world that we can't engage meaningfully or redemptively with it and thus reach our neighbors. And I think these chapters 8 to 10 correct us from falling into both those ditches, but I'm emerging from my study of those chapters with a much stronger sense of urgency than I had about warning us against this ditch over here, actually. Uh, like, I already knew we at North Sub were in danger of this one, and I thought that's where we needed to focus our energies, but now I'm actually more convinced than ever that I'm more in danger of this ditch than I realized, and that we as a church are more in danger of that ditch over there than I realized. So you'll hear some of that in the next few weeks of this series. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. 1876, Battle of the Little Bighorn. Many know it as Custer's Last Stand. The 7th Cavalry Regiment under General George Armstrong Custer foolishly and recklessly charges in against Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. The whole U.S. unit is wiped out. When I was a history teacher, I'd give assignments like this. If you were given a chance to go back via time machine to 1876, and you're allowed to make one argument to General Custer to try to persuade him not to engage in this battle, how would you convince him not to attack? Multiple approaches you could take, right? You could make your case on the, uh, based on the inherent injustice of the cause, right? Like, should we really be fighting these people in the first place? If you weren't confident General Custer would be receptive to that argument, you might try something like, hey, I get that you and General Terry are rivals and you really want to win a victory that will show that you're a better general than he is, but this particular battle isn't likely to achieve that for you. And if you still weren't confident that General Custer was going to hear you out, maybe you'd make an appeal based on his responsibility for the soldiers under his command. Like, hey, General Custer, let's assume this cause is just. Let's assume that your personal vendetta against General Terry has nothing to do with your plans. Given the size and the strength of the opposing forces, isn't it too much of a risk to which to subject the men under your command, all of whom could die if this goes wrong? In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is making an effort to be pastorally persuasive to a church full of people who are headed for serious danger. And so it's worth applying to our lives not only what Paul tells the Corinthians they should do, but also the reasons he chooses to use for what he tells them to do. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's page 1015 in the chairback Bibles. If you were here earlier this month, you may remember that we're now into the part of the letter in which Paul's responding to a list of at least six questions that the Corinthians had apparently written to him about previously. 
the list started back in chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul says, now in response to the matters you wrote about. And then he takes them one by one. We saw a couple of them in chapter 7. Hey, now about married people, now about unmarried people. We know he's moving on to a new question because he says, now about. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we get our next now about. This next now about is about food sacrifice to idols. We need to spend just a few more minutes than usual setting the stage for this one because unless things have gotten weirder at McDonald's than I realize, eating meat sacrificed to idols isn't an obviously relatable struggle for most of us. And what further complicates the issue is that Paul's argument itself actually goes beyond the passage that we're going to look at today to take up three chapters, chapters 8 through 10. In other words, you can't understand chapter 8 without reading it in light of where he's going in chapters 9 and 10. So see if you can picture this, okay? Here's the situation. Mid-first century, you're living in Corinth, which is a port city in Greece. Even within the wild, anything-goes nature of the Roman Empire at the time, Corinth has a reputation for being wide open, morally speaking. It would make Vegas look tame in many ways. And you've grown up in Corinth with the Greco-Roman gods being part of everything you do. You want to book a restaurant for a birthday party. The restaurants are all attached to the temple or some are in the temple and they serve food left over from the sacrifices to the local god or goddess. You go to the market. On the way in, you're offering up prayer to the local gods and then you purchase food that was dedicated to those gods and goddesses. You grow up and learn the family trade, say it's carpentry. The Carpenter's Guild meets quarterly at the temple where everybody's licenses are renewed and you eat and drink what's been offered up to the god or goddess of the Carpenter's Guild. It's just life. This is what everybody does. The seasons revolve around festivals to the gods. Business meetings are held in the temple ingesting the gods into us with our food and then often acting that out further with temple prostitutes who are there ready to do whatever we want. Everybody's diligent in town about offering their sacrifices so we don't risk angering the gods, which would endanger our financial prospects. We Corinthians are all on the same page here. This is just how life is lived. Can you picture it? Then a Christian comes to town and shares with you the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth to die for your sins and rise from the dead to give you new life forever. You realize just how dark all that worship of those other gods has been, how much harm it has done to you, and you become a Christian. How in the world are you supposed to keep functioning in society? Your cousin's birthday party is next week at the temple. What are you supposed to do? Renewal of your carpentry license is contingent on your participation in the worship of the patron god of the guild. How do you keep your job? You know that much of the meat offered in the market was probably offered up to a god or goddess at some point along the way before it was shipped over to the market as leftovers. Am I just not supposed to eat any meat? There's no getting away from this. It's everywhere. See, it it seems extreme then to say no meat sacrificed to idols. But apparently that's what Paul was teaching. It seems like the Corinthians believed Paul's existing teaching to be, hey, if you know that your food was sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. If that is what Paul is teaching, that would be consistent with Acts 15, where the Jerusalem Council uh, determined before the writing of 1 Corinthians that new Gentile believers didn't need to be circumcised or eat kosher or any of that like the Jewish believers did, but that they should abstain from food offered to idols, among a couple other things. 
Same with Acts 21. Gentiles who have believed, no food offered to idols. If we're going to fast forward a few decades beyond that to find a data point outside the book of Acts, two of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation received harsh words from the risen Jesus for allowing Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's Pergamum. Here's Thyatira, eating meat sacrificed to idols, off limits. So it seems reasonable to assume that's what the Corinthians had heard from Paul before this. No meat sacrificed to idols, which makes sense of why they've apparently written to him the way they have on this topic unlike other topics in this letter, where they're writing to Paul, and apparently it seems like they're like, hey, it's like an inquisitive spirit. Like, hey, what should we do about widows, Paul, in our midst? Hey, Paul, what do you think about spiritual gifts? The Corinthians seem to be writing to Paul more aggressively on this one. Like, come on, Paul. We know idols aren't real. Idol meat's pretty much the only meat around. It's harmless. Why are you being such a stickler on this? We should be able to eat meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, on this topic, they already have a stance. And they've written to Paul to challenge him on his stance. And Paul knows that this meat sacrifice to idols issue has potential to divide the church. So instead of just saying, hey, the Jerusalem council already ruled on this. These are the rules. Follow them. Instead, he's going to take his time over three chapters, 8, 9, 10, presenting five different cases why the Corinthians shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Kevin DeYoung has laid out the structure this way. I found his understanding of the passage persuasive. To consider the weaker brother, that's chapter 8. Consider my example, he says, that's chapter 9. Consider an example from the Old Testament, first part of chapter 10. Consider the Lord's Supper. Consider the principle of edification. All of these are aiming at the same big argument about meat sacrificed to idols. It's like our essay to General Custer saying, call off the attack. Just like there are multiple ways we could try to persuade the general not to attack, Paul employs five different arguments to try to make one case to the Corinthians about eating meat. Namely, if you know it's sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. Just like Acts 15 and Revelation say. Now, I need to acknowledge here, um, probably a slight majority of commentators disagree with what I'm saying here and think Paul's more permissive than what I'm going to present in my sermons on these three chapters. In other words, many commentators read chapter 8 as Paul saying, hey, it's inherently okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but you just shouldn't eat it in certain venues, or you shouldn't partake if it's going to damage someone's conscience. I see it differently. You should certainly explore it for yourself as we work through these three chapters this morning and into January. Today we're just tackling chapter 8, though I'm doing so in light of the, where this whole argument's going through chapter 10. So, with all that backdrop, if you scan chapter 8, You'll see, you don't need to read that. I'm just showing you all the times the word no comes up. No or knowledge. It's all over. With that in mind, we can summarize the three parts of this passage like this. Hey, Corinthians, knowledge isn't everything. Hey, you do know one thing. Not everybody knows that one thing. Those are three parts of this passage. Take them one by one. First, knowledge isn't everything. Let's read verses one through three. Now about food sacrificed to idols, Paul says. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Paul needs to define some limits to the value of knowledge because the Corinthians are waving around their knowledge as though it gives them a free pass. We know we all have knowledge, they've written to him. Translators put quotes there and in verse 4, because these are almost certainly quotes from the Corinthians. The Corinthians are arguing, hey, Paul, we know idols are nothing because there's only one God. In other words, ease up, Paul. 
We all have this knowledge. Why are you putting such a burden on us by telling us we can't eat idol food? And in response, Paul says, hey, knowledge without love only makes a person conceited. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, meaning I might be totally right about what I have come to know, yet it's all too possible to misuse that truth to trample all over my brothers and sisters. What good is my knowledge if I use it to advantage myself and not to build up others? Furthermore, none of us know anything completely. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he doesn't yet know it as he ought to know it. This was initially confusing to me, especially in light of all Paul says positively in this letter about the value of knowing things. Then I realized chapter 10 fleshes this out. In chapter 10, Paul's going to circle back to this idea. And what he's going to say is, hey, so you guys think you know that eating and drinking idol food, uh, it can't be harmful because they're not real gods. Okay, well, did you remember that back in the Old Testament, those idols that they were worshiping, those weren't real gods either. Yet, when the people got up to eat and drink, God put a whole bunch of them to death for their idolatry. So if you think you know so well that idols are harmless, you might not yet know that as you ought to know it. That's for a January sermon. The broader principle, though, in verse 2, is that we should have some humility. While there's lots that we can know truly, and while it's right to pursue that knowledge, we can't and won't know exhaustively all that God knows. And in any case, what's far more important than what we know is who we're known by. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Here Paul gives us a beautiful preview of that love passage that's coming up in chapter 13, where knowledge and love are juxtaposed just like this, that just there in chapter 13 that's foreshadowed here is, hey, being fully known by God is the only way to access full knowledge, the sort of knowledge that builds up instead of puffing up. So with all the Corinthians claim to know, Paul's saying, hey, whatever you know about God, that's great, but has he captured your affection? Sure, you know some things about him, but do you love him? Knowledge isn't everything. Now, zooming out on these first three verses, which remind us that knowledge isn't always all it's cracked up to be, here's my question. Is this an indictment of a church like ours? Like, let's be honest about who we are here at North Sub. Some churches spend a lot less energy on theology and doctrine and thinking than we do. True? Other churches say things like, hey, we aren't all about orthodoxy, right, belief. We're about orthopraxy, right, practice. They say things like, we don't know if we're getting all our fine points of doctrine just right. Who cares anyway? What's important is that we love. And we're doing that. We've got soup kitchens. We're caring for immigrants. We're known in our community for loving the marginalized. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And their people say, amen. Amen. I've benefited immensely from seasons of attending those churches. And I know what my friends at those churches would say after a visiting for a Sunday here at North Sub. They'd say, Tim, why are you now pastoring a church in such a way that Sunday mornings require so much thinking? Why is there so much reasoning in your sermons? Why are you singing songs with lyrics like, "All oh, hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all, when you could just sing, great is your faithfulness to me, over and over 20 times. Tim, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Did you forget? Here's what I'd say. The same Paul who wrote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, 
says nine times in this letter alone, don't you know, dot, 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 rebuking his readers for not knowing things that they should know. The same Paul who wrote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, writes letters that are so dense in their theological reasoning that even the Apostle Peter says Paul's letters take intellectual work to understand. In other words, as soon as we find ourselves using Paul, of all people, to justify our intellectual and theological and doctrinal laziness, we should be like, wait a minute, would Paul agree with how I'm reading him here? No, I hope that we are a church and that we are continuing to grow more and more into being a church that honors this verse by loving each other. Even in our seeking of the truth together. If I thought it was going to be loving of me to get up here having done sloppy research and just give you my random thoughts inspired by this passage that might or might not have anything to do with what was intended by the author, I would do that. But I'm not sure that would be loving you well. I'm convinced it's more loving to attempt to give you God's words instead of my own. To feed you real food, real substance. But I want to insist, and to insist all the more with every year that goes by, that we never become a church where we want to know stuff just to know it. I don't want anything to do with a church like that, right? I want to waste a single sentence giving you trivia on a Sunday morning. If there's even one phrase in my sermon that isn't going to tie into something we can apply to our lives... It goes on the chopping block. When we sharpen each other in knowledge, we want to do so to the end of building each other up, to increase our love, love for the Lord and love for each other. As good and as important as knowledge is, it isn't everything. And we need to keep reminding each other of that. That's why the individual with Down syndrome or who doesn't have a high school diploma has a valued place at the table here at North Sub. That's why we work really hard not to use big theological terms in our sermons or songs without defining them. Instead, we try to explain God's word in such a way that the gist of what we're saying could be reasonably understood by anybody. I don't want to be the smart people church or the church known for heady academics. I want to be the church known for Project Share and for global missions and for everybody having a seat at a Thanksgiving dinner table and for reaching hurting people on the North Shore with the good news of Jesus. But we're fools if we think we're going to sustain all that good work for decades to come while being lazy with our theological thinking. No, we're aiming to serve up each week the sort of knowledge that fuels an affection for God that will drive the engine of our love for others. That's the goal. And Paul's laying the foundation in these first three verses to be able to say in just a few minutes, hey, you Corinthians, you're presently not using your knowledge in this way. You're using your knowledge to excuse your disregard for brothers and sisters. But before he goes there, he does first want to acknowledge the Corinthians have got one important thing right. One important thing right. You do know one thing, he's going to tell them, verses 4 through 6. He's going to tell them that he agrees with this particular assertion that they've made, even if he's going to disagree with their application of it. Take a look at verses 4 through 6. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that An idol is nothing in the world. That's a quote from the Corinthians. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. The Corinthians are right that an idol is nothing in this world. 
they wrote that correctly to him. The Old Testament ridiculed idols. Remember, it says things like, yesterday this was a tree that you chopped down from the forest and cut it down and whittled. It needed you to prop it up or else it would have fallen over. And now you're praying to it? And Paul's like, you're exactly right, Corinthians. That Aphrodite idol that your neighbor worships is nothing. Furthermore, there is no God but one. This is the Shema, as you Jewish folks among us know. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the core statement of biblical monotheism, a foundational pillar of our faith. The first words my kids ever heard in this world. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. How ought we to think, then, about all the gods our neighbors are worshiping? Paul acknowledges, well, sure, there are so-called gods in heaven, like Zeus and Athena, and on earth, like the emperor. There's a sense in which these can be called gods or lords because they do receive human worship. But in the truest and most important sense, they're not gods at all. There's no God but one. For us, we know there's one God. He's the Father. All things are from him. We exist for him. If we existed for our own sake, it wouldn't matter what we eat. But we exist for him, so everything down to what we eat has to be filtered through the grid of what he wants for us. But then check out this truly wild plot twist to the one God discussion. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, Paul adds. If all things are from God, all things are through Jesus. And if all things, if we exist for God, we exist through Jesus. Meaning that he's the Lord we answer to about what we eat and drink and everything else, which only makes sense if Jesus Christ himself is the God of the Shema, where there's no God but one. See, in contrast to their pagan, unbelieving neighbors who regularly and dutifully recited, Caesar is Lord, the Corinthian Christians know Jesus Christ is the one Lord. There's only one God, only one Lord. These idols are not gods or lords at all. So we can imagine the Corinthians saying at this point, at the end of verse 6. Yes, Paul, exactly. So what's the big deal? If we just have to be able to affirm our allegiance to one God, great. Who cares if we eat a steak every now and then that happened to be offered to a different God? That's all the meat that's available in the market today. I know it's all a sham. I'm not worshiping those gods. I just want to live a normal existence in Corinth. Paul knows that's what they're thinking. In response, he presents the big argument that he's been building to in this chapter. Hey, that one thing that you know, not everybody knows that one thing. It is true what you said, but remember, knowledge isn't everything. And besides, not everybody knows what you know. Not everyone has this knowledge. Verse 7. We can picture the person Paul has in mind here. They're used to the feasts and the festivals and the parties, and the business meetings in which priests or regular individuals would lead the proceedings of eating sacrificed meat, using language like, let's take this God into us now. And they can still remember that while eating, prostitutes waited just on the other side of the room, ready to do all sorts of enactments of this union with the gods. How's that person who comes from that background going to feel when you walk up to them and say, hey, come on, just enjoy this burger? Who cares that it was offered to Artemis? Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, 
is defiled. Even if on some level this believer knows intellectually now that these gods aren't real, it takes time for it not to feel so wrong, right? To eat the burger would feel dirty. Like every time I've ever done this, I did so taking the deity into myself. I don't know how to eat a burger without doing that. As such, implied here is what Paul has said elsewhere, that none of us should ever go against our conscience. And we should never encourage anybody else to go against their conscience. Some scholars make the mistake of making this passage out to be the same situation as Romans 14. In reality, there are many differences. 1 Corinthians gets misread as a result of assumptions that the two are addressing the same question. They're not. But one point of genuine overlap, if you're familiar with Romans 14, is that if we ever find ourselves going against our conscience, we need to stop. We should never do anything that we feel is wrong, even if we end up becoming convinced later that, oh, that wasn't actually wrong, that was okay. Still, in the moment in which you thought it was wrong, it was wrong for you. Now, like I said, I'm, I'm actually making the case these few weeks that 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 are Paul making a case that knowingly eating meat sacrificed to idols is always actually wrong. And this point in chapter 8 about violating each other's consciences is just the first of five cases that he's going to make against it. Consider the weaker brother. In other words, I think chapter 10 will clarify to be wrong even if it didn't violate anyone else's conscience. So why make this chapter 8 argument at all? If he's getting ready to say in chapter 10, which he is, hey, you're engaging with demons when you eat this food. Why make the case about weaker brothers and sisters? I think it's because he's writing to people who are so dead set on being able to eat their idol meat that he wisely, pastorally starts with the argument he thinks they'll be most ready to receive. Like, hey, I know you're convinced this is okay, but think about your brothers and sisters. You really want to take a risk of defiling them so you can exercise your freedom? In verse 8, Paul basically says, hey, don't act like you're gaining some kind of access to God or higher spiritual experience by eating this meat. There's nothing lost for those who aren't partaking. And here's the crux of his chapter 8 argument. It's verse 9. He says, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. This is the biggest counterpoint, the strongest counterpoint against the interpretation that I'm laying out for these chapters. If Paul thinks it's inherently wrong to knowingly eat meat sacrificed to idols, as I'm saying he does, why does he call it a right that they have? I think in chapter 10, he's going to clarify that they do sometimes have a right to eat meat, particularly when they don't know whether it's been sacrificed to idols. In that case, he's going to say, you don't have to chase down the history of the cow and see if it was sacrificed or not. If it's not clear, just eat it. To that extent, it is a right, and it's not inherently sinful, right? But at this point in the argument, in chapter 8, even though he hasn't yet clarified how far that right goes, he's just granting for the sake of discussion. Okay, so it's a right of yours. In order to say, hey, even if this is your right, that still doesn't mean you should exercise the right. Even if you think you have the right to eat this meat, it's still best not to knowingly do it, even if just for the sake of your weaker brothers and sisters. What's he mean by weak? Seems kind of rude. It's a very different situation than when he talks about the weak group in Romans 14. He, he nowhere here contrasts the weak group with a strong group. He doesn't say anything about a strong group. Here the contrast to the weak is those with knowledge, quote-unquote. And Paul distances himself from both groups. Look at what he says here. He says, this right of yours. 
The weak here aren't lifelong Jews, for example, who are just horrified at the thought of anything Gentile and would be offended by it. No. The weak here are those who used to worship idols and who would still feel wrong eating a steak out of fear it would causing them to commune intimately with false gods, right? Paul gives a practical example in verse 10 of what he's thinking of, how this could harmfully play out. He says, for if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? That helps us understand what he meant by the stumbling block. Back in verse 9, we often use that term stumbling block today to mean, oh, it's something that offends another Christian or something another Christian would disagree with as though we should never do anything other Christians would disapprove of. But Paul isn't saying that. He isn't saying, imagine somebody sees you dining in an idol's temple and they think you're doing the wrong thing, so they're offended. That's not what he says. He says, imagine if someone sees you dining in an idol's temple and their weak consciousness occurs and they start eating the food offered to idols. Won't he think to himself, oh, if he's doing it, I'll do it too. If he's unconcerned about a little idolatry, I won't be concerned about a little idolatry either. That's when you become a stumbling block. The weaker person knew it was wrong, but now they're doing it anyway because you made them think it's okay to fool around. You treated it as no big deal, and so they treated it as no big deal. Paul's like, I'll tell you what the big deal is. Christ died for this person. He shed his blood in their place. He loved them so much. He so wanted to spend eternity with them that he left heaven and paid the ultimate price to purchase them for himself. But you think their future is so insignificant that you're willing to be flippant about it? You're so proud of your knowledge that idols aren't real that you're willing to ruin your brother or sister? Verses 11 and 12. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. And when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. For Paul to write this way only makes sense in, in light of what we saw back in chapter 6, that idolaters won't enter the kingdom. So Paul's challenging the Corinthians. You're willing to take the risk of luring a brother or sister into idolatry that could exclude them permanently from Christ? This is such a big deal, Paul says, that if it meant I'd have to go totally vegetarian, I'd do it. If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I'm never going to eat meat. So I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. I'd put up with that massive inconvenience. Rather than take the risk, I'd lead a brother to sister, brother or sister to start acting casually toward idolatry. What does Paul know that makes him treat this matter with such life or death urgency? Why should we not even play around when it comes, with, comes to flirting with the edges of idolatry? What I'm about to share isn't my original insight by any means, but I think it's spot on. Paul knows the greatest danger to the church isn't the takeover of some other religion or Christians abandoning the faith altogether, but rather it's something we could call syncretism. The blending of Christianity with a little of this, a little of that. Marrying them together. Isn't that what kept plaguing God's people in the Old Testament? They didn't completely abandon the one true God for the gods of other nations. They more so tried to worship the true God side by side with the gods of the other nations. They didn't totally reject the law of God. They kept parts of God's law while incorporating the practices of other people groups alongside. And isn't that what continued to plague God's people in the New Testament? Think back to the letters to the Revelation churches. It's still the same today. always has been. The greatest threat to the church isn't a wholesale takeover of some other religion or mass abandonment of Christianity. It's that God's people will start becoming comfortable taking bits and pieces of 
this and that and integrating it into the Christian faith. That will say with the Corinthians, hey, come on. We all know there's only one God. So if we kind of just go through the motions of a sacrifice, so to speak, to this God or that God, what's the big deal? And in doing so, we'll endanger both ourselves and our brothers and sisters who are tempted into idolatry by following our example. Our big idea today is this. Let's be willing to lay down our rights rather to cause our brothers and sisters to fall. Let's be willing to lay down our rights rather than cause our brothers and sisters to fall. Now remember, this passage isn't in the context of super conservative brothers and sisters who have a million added rules and want to police everybody. It's not about making those people happy. That's not it. This is about brothers and sisters who maybe come from lives of giving in to certain sins and are susceptible to returning to those sins. Let's lay down our rights rather than cause them to fall back into the sins they used to commit. Like General Custer, we are in danger of disaster as Christians today. Right? More danger than we probably realize. The favored gods of our age have successfully lured and enticed the church to become very comfortable cozying up to and starting to blend worship of the one true God with worship of any other number of deities. In a month, when we come back to this series, we'll see stark warnings from Paul like, hey, stay away. Flee from that idolatry ahead. But for now, in chapter 8, he has eased us into it by starting with a more measured initial warning. He's saying, think about how your comfort with the gods of this world could lead your brothers and sisters astray. So that's the aspect of this I want to invite us to reflect on as we close. <clears throat> I want us to think about things that we may have a right to on this earth. Okay, this is a final closing exercise. Ready? We're going to apply this now. After all, at this point, Paul hasn't decisively told them whether or not they have a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. In some cases, namely when they don't know it's been sacrificed to idols, he's going to say they do have that right. So let's assume we have a right, you and I have a right, to do certain things of this world. When are we justified to avail ourselves of that right? And when is it better to lay down that right so we won't cause our brothers and sisters to fall? You've got a sheet of paper that you were handed on the way in. I want us to take the next couple minutes considering a few scenarios, just three, okay? Jot down a few notes. I'd love to invite you to do this about what you would do in each of these three situations. This is going to get real here, okay? First situation is this, and you're thinking in light of what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 8. What would you do, okay? First scenario is this, a glass of wine. You're over 21. You're convinced that there's nothing inherently sinful about having a glass of wine at the Christmas party, given that you won't get intoxicated. Yet across the room, you see a member of your life group whom you know has battled alcoholism and is fighting for sobriety. What do you do? I'll say it again. Jotting down what you do in this situation, just for your own sake. Nobody's going to look at this. Again, you're over 21. You're convinced there's nothing inherently sinful about having a glass of wine. Christmas party, you're not going to get intoxicated. Yet across the room, you see a member of your life group whom you know has battled alcoholism and is fighting for sobriety. What do you do? Think about it. Jot down some thoughts. Scenario two. You attend a Super Bowl party with some people from church. They're all placing small bets on various aspects of the game. You would have a hard time pointing to a scripture that definitively prohibits this sort of gambling. 
doesn't seem inherently more harmful than paying $5 for a box of popcorn at the movie theater. Yet in the door walks a member of your growth group, say, whom you know has been ramping up his weekly online betting on sporting events. and seems to be possibly, from what you can tell, be getting addicted to the rush of it. What do you do? I'll explain it again. It's a Super Bowl party. People from church, they're all placing small bets on various aspects of the game. You can't find anything in Scripture that definitively 100% says don't gamble like this in this sort of way. Yet, you've got somebody from your growth group present who you know has been possibly on the brink of getting addicted to gambling. What do you do? Jot down a thought or two. Final scenario. After you and your husband both get year-end promotions, now you're making more money than ever. You're also more generous than you ever have been. You're giving away an unprecedented and substantial percentage of your income. After all that giving, you realize you still have money to buy the high-end luxury SUV you've had your eye on. You're convinced it's not inherently sinful to do so. Shortly after you buy it, a younger, less well-off woman you're discipling stretches her pennies to buy a luxury SUV of her own and tells you how free she felt to make the purchase once she saw you do the same. What do you do? Say it again. You've got promotions. You've got the money. You're more generous than you've ever been, giving away substantial, substantial percentage of your income. you still got money to get luxury SUV. A woman you're discipling follows in your footsteps, does the same despite not having the same income you have, not having the same resources you have values the freedom that she had to do so based on what she saw you do. What do you do? In each of these three situations, there's a question of what we have the right to do. Paul will engage with that question in chapter 10, which is when we'll engage with it directly, head on as well. But for this morning's purposes, assuming for the sake of argument that we do have the right to a glass of wine, that we do have the right to bet a few dollars on the Super Bowl. That we do have the right to buy an expensive vehicle. Just because we have the right doesn't mean we ought to avail ourselves of the right in every situation. Now, clarification. This is a very, very important clarification. It's nobody's place to tell us we don't have the right. Here's what I mean. If I hear anybody at North Sub telling another member with certainty you are in sin because you had a glass of wine or you are in sin because you bet on the Super Bowl or you are in sin because you have a nice car. I would like to personally address that firmly and directly. We have freedom in Christ. All I'm saying from 1 Corinthians 8 is that knowledge that we have that we're free to do certain things must be superseded by and governed by our love for others, and our awareness of how our actions might affect them. If it's possible that we're going to lead someone weaker into sin by our exercise of freedom, it may be our responsibility in certain situations to lay down that freedom for the sake of the other for whom Christ died, even at great cost to ourselves. Let's pray.
Lord, it's not easy navigating life in this world. <clears throat> we need your spirit to guide us. There's any number of situations we face as we're living in a world that doesn't acknowledge you as the one true God, in a world that worships all sorts of other gods in which we have to exercise wisdom, discernment. If we want to be led by your spirit in that quest. If we want to be people who don't flirt with idolatry. We also want to be people who are in the world and engaging with the world in a winsome way. Please give us wisdom individually and corporately as a church as we try to navigate that path. Give us your grace. Continue to shower your grace on us for when we mess that up, when we miss on one side or the other. And help us to be a people who give each other grace on that quest as well as we seek to sharpen each other and encourage each other into becoming more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.